This is Death of the Reader. We are on the podcast, and we are covering the Van Dyne 20 Rules of Detective Fiction. Says it all in the tin. There are 20 rules. Van Dyne wrote them. They are way too long, but we're going to power through them for your (laughs) listening pleasure. Yes. So... If you're familiar with the show and you've been listening for a while, you know that we love the Ronald Knox Decalogue, which is 10 rules on how to play murder mystery fair. Yes. Now, around the same time, a contemporary of uh, Ronald Knox, uh, S.S. Van Dyne, wrote a similar set of rules. Which we like. Yes. Which we we like, but for very different reasons. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, These actually came out in the same year, and I cannot find clarification on which came out first. I believe that Van Dyne's came out first, so it is entirely possible that Knox was actually writing in response to him. So he was actually... Uh, Knox is the hack here, is what you're telling me. Yes, Knox is definitely the hack well, and was not making fun of him in any Mis- way, shape, or mystery form. Solved. <laughs> mystery solved. Mystery solved. we figured it out. But yeah, so we're going to go through the, the 20 rules, have a chat about mm. them. It's going to be great. Yeah, I think the important thing to go into these rules knowing is that when Knox was mainly about fair play, these are more about how to write a good story. Mm. That also happens to be fair. Yeah, it's more about the intellectual battle between the reader, the detective, and the criminal, that sort of thing. It's about just being fair. It's fun and different. Yes. Now, Van Dyne opens by saying that the detective story is a game. It is more. It is a sporting event, and the author must play fair with the reader. His first rule says that the reader must have an equal opportunity with the detective for solving the mystery. I think this is pretty straight-out obvious good times. Mm -hmm. This is what we like about detective fiction. This is saying that you should have a chance to solve the puzzle, which I think is absolutely true. It's the whole point of detective fiction. Yes, I do think that it's important that it says it's the detective rather than the author because it means that you have someone that you're trying to bench with Mm -hmm. rather than the author who already knows the answer. Mm -hmm. So I do like the way that that's phrased. Uh, Yeah, and the second rule about no tricks or deceptions uh, that is not played legitimately by the criminal. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, I really like this one because it very much sets up detective fiction to be an accurate game between the detective and the criminal. It's not about the author trying to fool you in the most complicated ways possible. It's about how does this impossible situation happen and what does the detective and yourself do to get around it? It's again about fairness, right? Mm -hmm. The detective isn't giving any clues that we're not and we are not going to be kept in the dark as uh, the tools the detective is using. Yeah, and this is very much the same as the Knox rule, which says that the detective must not light on any clues which are not instantly produced for the inspection of the reader, mm-hmm. although it's more coming from the perspective of where do you get these tricks from. The third rule, there must be no love interest in the story. Herds, I know you hate this one. I do. This is like the bane of my existence. Why could there not be love in a murder mystery? I'm just saying, romance is the most mysterious uh, genre of all. Yeah, the uh, the interesting quote here is that the business at hand is to bring a criminal to the bar of justice, not to bring a lovelorn couple to the hymnal altar. As much fun as that is. Yes, and like on the one hand, I can kind of understand this because it's saying that if you are selling your audience a detective fiction novel, you do not want to sell them a romance novel disguised as detective fiction. Yes. But at the same time, I don't think those things need to be mutually exclusive. I don't either. Besides... I'm sure there are plenty of detective fictions that are sold as both a detective fiction and a romance. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't know whether Van Dyne is saying that you can or cannot use uh, romance as a red herring or not. Mm. Uh, I would I would wager not, but, you know, maybe he would still use it as the game that he's playing. I don't know. It's a tool in the writer's toolbox, right? Absolutely. Uh, the detective himself, uh, or one of the official investigators... Should not turn out to be the culprits. Yes. This is pretty straightforward. The fourth rule. Yeah. I do like this one because it 
is another one of these rules where you get in and you say, these are the people that it can't be, these are the people you know you should trust. Mm -hmm. And obviously, rules are defined in their breaking, as we've said many times on the show, uh, but I think that this particular rule is important when you pitch to your reader, like, is this game fair? Yeah. And as long as you sell to them the twist, if maybe one of the investigators is the culprit, that's all right. Yeah. I'm not sure Van Dyne would be happy with it, but... yeah. This is also very much about the gathering of evidence, mm. I feel, uh, on par with the, the the second rule, that you should have characters who can give, you know, this is this is the trajectory of the bullet at the time this person was killed. This is what their state was in, da-da-da-da-da. And the reader should be able to rely on that information to make a sound judgment. Yeah. This obviously doesn't explicitly exclude the doctor being mm. a misleading person. Well, the doctor is a, a funny little relic of time, isn't he? Yeah, I like... Obviously, we're covering the Benson murder case alongside this, and I know that the doctor is specifically a police doctor, Mm. so one would assume that he's reliable, but it is also an absolute staple of the genre to have doctors lie and fake alibis for people. Cover up up deaths, fake alibis, uh, mess with, you know, this was the cause of the death. Mm. Poison. It definitely was not poison. Never was poison. Definitely a bullet. Definitely a rule that I think can be played with a lot more than the ones we've covered so far, but still an interesting one to keep in mind. The fifth rule, the culprit must be determined by logical deductions, no accident or coincidence or unmotivated confession. Um, This is very similar to Ronald Knox's rule that uh, the detective must not have an unaccountable intuition, which proves to be right, Mm. Um, which I think is totally fine. Like, sometimes you have to have a bit of circumstance that helps the detective along. I'm sure Van Dyne would be terribly appalled with you if you had such a thing, but It depends on the way that you use it, and it depends on the way that you sell it, I think. This is not to be confused with the tell, of course. If there's some moment where the the criminal says something they shouldn't, maybe that's something you can pick up on. That's something that's obfuscated. It's Mm. different to the deliberate, I did it, I have done all of the crimes. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Uh, The detective novel must have a detective in it, and a detective is not a detective unless he detects. Rule number six. Yes. I don't like this rule. Why not? Because I think that not having a detective is one of the interesting ways to set up the reader and put them like in an uncomfortable position where they go like, oh no, who am, who am I meant to be trusting? Who can mm. I listen to? Whose perspective am I following? Mm. Are they reliable? Are they unreliable? It's one of the easiest games to play in detective fiction, and I think that this rule really misses out on an opportunity there. Yeah, for sure. Admittedly, the rule does go on to say that this is kind of similar to uh, if you don't have a detective, it's like reading the answers out of the back of your math book, Mm. which, I mean, I guess I can kind of understand that perspective, but it's a very unimaginative way of looking at the role of the detective. Yeah, I mean, I think the point here is just to say we need to have a character who looks at the clues and interprets them in some way. Mm. We need to give some additional context to the viewer. You know, you can say... There was a honeycomb and a few bits of, you know, glue in the in the bathtub sink. But we, we won't know that that could actually make a, uh, a substance that looks like stone until you tap on it and it falls apart like butter. Yeah. Until the story gives us some context. Indeed. Mm. Rule number seven hurts. There simply must be a corpse in a detective novel and the dead of the corpse, the better. This is my favorite uh, rule. Love this rule. <laughs> and it's, it's simultaneously the best and worst rule because mm. on the one hand, it's written amazingly. It's a fantastic line to just read. The deader, the corpse, the better. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, 
why why not have a detective story without a corpse? Yeah, the assumption that uh, Van Dyne is making here, especially with the note of 300 pages being far too much pother for a crime other than murder, why can't you have a detective story that is less than 300 pages? Why does it need to be that long? Yeah. Why couldn't you just have a two-minute story that we pick up and drop down? You know, why Why can't there be other kinds of fiction that don't involve murder? He's being very pretentious here, which we love. Yeah, and <laughs> I mean, the other thing is, is that I think that he's inadvertently saying that books that are in other genres that are 300 pages or more are not worth reading. I don't think that's what he means, but that's certainly the way that it comes across. Mm. Um, and it's, oh, come on, come on, Van Dyne. Come on, boy. Mm-hmm. Rule number eight, the problem of the crime must be solved by strictly naturalistic means. Yes. This one's pretty straightforward. No mm-hmm. magic, right? Like, yep. no, uh, we go to a seance and we divine the humors of the killer. That's mm. unless there's some, you know, evidence involved in the shape of the hand or something like that. But uh, I think this is a pretty good rule. I don't think there's much complaint about this one. Uh, I mean, there definitely is some interesting points to be made about, like, other genres of detective fiction, like sci-fi detective fiction, which for a long time was said by many to be nigh on impossible, because how do you create a crime that can be solved through regular means in a Mm. world where we have the gizmo gadget solve at 500, (laughs) right? Um, So I think, again, it's a bit of an unimaginative way of viewing the genre, but at the same time, it does have a very important place in saying, like, don't just have them you know, use a Ouija board to find the answers. Unless the entire novel is about them getting that Ouija board yes. so they can get the answers, maybe you consider doing it a different way. Yeah, for sure. Rule number nine, there must be but one detective. Interesting rule. Disagree. Why not have multiple detectives? That's the, that's the whole fun, watching them, like, bounce off each other, do a Three Stooges type thing. They're all trying to solve the mystery. They all have different theories, throwing it off each other. This That's so much fun. Why would you not have that? Yeah, and I think that the immediate reaction that I have to this rule is that it's saying that you can't have more than one person trying to solve the crime. I don't think that's accurate. Mm. I think that you should be, what Van Dyne is saying is that you should be clear about who you as the reader are trying to beat to the solution. Sure. Because, I mean, already in the first chapters of the Benson murder case, we have Markham, we have SS Van Dyne, we have the entire police department. Mm. The question is, can we beat Vance to the solution? The answer is probably no, because he seems to have solved it in the first two pages. Definitely no. Um, Vance OP. (laughs) But I think that this is more saying that you need to be clear to your readers about who they're trying to beat. And I think that's fine. I don't like the way that it is written, though. Yeah, My my perspective on this rule is that you should never have to feel like it's it's a challenge to go up against multiple detectives because the author can just write them with less intelligence. Like, mm. it's a thing about the fiction that can be changed, right? Absolutely. It's like saying, you know, because of this plot point that was written halfway through the season of the show, they couldn't change the death of this fan-favorite character. It's yeah. like, but they could have rewritten that. If mm-hmm. they'd written the whole season at once, they should be able to just take that plot point out and do something else. Same principle here. Indeed. Well, number 10, the culprit must turn out to be a person who has played more or less a prominent role in the story. This is very much the same as uh, Ronald Knox's rule that the culprit must appear in the early part of the story. Think it's totally fine. Love it. Good work. It's about engagement. Um, I do think that the particular point that they should have played a prominent role is fun. Uh, It's a bit more explicit on that than Knox was with saying that they just have to have appeared in the early part of the story. Um, It definitely does lend an interesting lens to when you're looking at Van Dyne's stories himself and saying, like, right, who is actually featured in the early part of the story. Yeah. Um, So it's... You know, it's an interesting tool in your tool belt as the reader, 
as well as uh, an interesting point to make about the genre. Yeah, so she ties in very well with the next rule. Rule number 11, servants such as butlers, footmen, valets, gamekeepers, quips, and the like must not be chosen by the author as the culprit. Yes. This is uh, an interesting rule because it ties into into Van Dyne's, like, hatred of the poor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, this this is the thing, is that his perspective is that the, the culprit needs to be someone of importance. Yeah. It's why he plays with rich people, with police officers, with, you know, very official-looking colonels and dames. These are the people that he's interested in having in his stories. So having someone who is not a main character, who is just there to be the background, to be the servant, that would feel like it wasn't appropriate to him. Mm. Um, Now, here's the thing is, if you were to read the first line of this rule, I would say that all it is saying is don't have it be someone who is obvious. Yep. It's saying don't. It's the same as Knox's Chinaman rule, saying that it can't be the person who is obviously the culprit because it's the obvious reason. The problem with this rule is that it then goes on to say that if it was the work of a menial, yes. um, which is is just awful. A menial, yeah. So if you just read the first sentence, fantastic rule. Don't make it be the obvious person for obvious reasons. Uh, at the same time, uh, please, Van Dyne, yep. get down off your high horse. <laughs> Uh, it's difficult to speak to you while you're up there. Yeah, this definitely ties into why he's not as popular now as he was yeah. back in the day. Mm. All those prejudices are really racking up right now, aren't they? Yeah. Rule number 12, there must be but one culprit no matter how many murders are committed. Eh, I disagree. Again. <laughs> the, I think the reason for this rule is obviously that you don't want to get to the end of the novel and have your readers go, what, but I guessed that one correctly, but there were four more culprits. What, how was I supposed to figure that one out? You can foreshadow it. You exactly. can rewrite it. This is similar to his rule about the one detective. Mm-hmm. You can easily have a group of detectives. You can also have a group of murderers. You just need to write the story in such a way. And maybe that even means writing beyond 300 pages and writing yep. like a thousand pages. Um, you can do it. Could do a Van Dyne. Yeah, I, I mean, some of the most iconic murder mysteries in history yes. are stories that have had multiple culprits. And, and that's the trick. twist that has made them iconic is that. Yes. And I think that that's totally fine. Once again, very unimaginative of him. <laughs> <laughs> Rule number 13. Rule number 13. Secret societies, cameras, mafias, et al. have no place in a detective story. Uh, yes. This, yes. This is a fun, this is a is fun rule. Is it a fun rule? I don't know. I don't know that I agree with what he's doing here because I think you could have a very interesting, you know, murder mystery that devolves into this, you know, this big conspiracy. Mm. I actually enjoy that sort of thing. Um, but Van Dyne seems to consider it outside of the genre. He says if it's if it's of a grand scale, if there are more than one important character in the book, if mm. there's more than two people trying out with each other, if there's all these protections he had to get through, then it is no longer murder mystery. It is not part of this very special club that he's a part of yeah. with like two other people. I do love the line that no high class self-respecting murderer <sighs> wants such odds in his jousting bout with the police. Yes, like it's, what yeah. what are you saying here, yes. Van Dyne? Are you saying that a criminal wouldn't want to take every advantage they could get? Or are you saying that they're like a they're like a sporting, you know, foot you know, like a golfman, you mm. know, that that's basically what he's saying. It's ridiculous. I mean, I do like the perspective (laughs) that this is kind of like doing, again, Knox's Chinaman rule, where you don't want it to be something that people can't understand. Yeah. You don't want it to be, oh, this was just, you know, the secret society that kills people once a week because that's Mm. their that's their ritual and you have no way to find that out. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Once again, it's one way you can definitely work around it in very interesting ways. He's definitely arguing that you want to have a murder mystery where we set out the expectations of Mm. what the criminal can do. Um, 
we don't want to find out that the reason why there was a locked room is because they hired a company of construction workers to come in and refit the wall. But they're also in a blood pack, a blood pact, so they can't talk about it. Ah, of course. Like, of you course. don't want anything like that, okay? That actually sounds like a really interesting puzzle. I want it you does. to find a story that has that. I will find that, and I will make that a book that we do. There we go. Rule number 14, the method of murder and the means of detecting it must be rational and scientific. This is just repeating the same rules say, as before. Haven't we done this before? Yeah. Yeah. Once again, it does word it a bit differently. Obviously, these rules get very wordy, but... You know, I don't think there's anything that really stands out in this one. Yeah. Talks a bit more about science mm. than than magic, which I like. But yeah. yeah, similar principle. Could have been cut down, Van Dyne. Mm. I think he was just trying to get to the number 20 at this point. Yeah, it's a good thing he stopped at 20. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> that nice, did that. Rule nice number 15. <laughs> the truth of the problem must at all times be apparent, provided the reader is shrewd enough to see it. And uh, this is my favorite rule. Mm. This is my favorite rule in the bunch. This rule is why I love detective fiction. Mm. It's why I love murder mystery. Because what it says, and I'll read the continuation of it. By this I mean that if the reader, after learning the explanation for the crime, should reread the book, he would see that the solution had, in a sense, been staring him in the face. That all the clues had really pointed to the culprit, and that if he had been as clever as the detective, he could have solved the mystery himself without going on to the final chapter. Mm. Love it. Best part of the genre. Yeah. I mean, this is how we get all of these stories of how you can reread a story and get a completely different experience. Yes. Um, it doesn't happen in, in most genres. You watch it once, you understand the story beats, you follow the character's arcs, you're done. With murder mystery, you can look back through the same novel and see, oh, that person was a criminal. That person was the murder the entire time. That's why they said this. Yeah. That's why the detective went there. That's what they were thinking. Um, and that is one of the most enjoyable parts of reading these stories. Yeah, I mean, the solution. even... For me, when I sit down and I spend a ludicrous amount of time trying to actually solve these stories, you know, partially for the show, I mm. still go back over the second time and I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that. It's a mm. completely different experience no matter how yeah. hard I try. Yeah. Some of the best detective novels, uh, they recontextualize previous chapters as you go through them. Mm. Um, so, you know, you'll finish chapter eight and you say, well, now I'm going to go reread chapter one and see how that fits in. Yeah. And so on and so forth. Those are some of the most compelling reads I've ever had in my life. Absolutely. Number 16, a detective novel should contain no long descriptive passages, such as the one that is this rule. Yes. Um, <laughs> this is the longest rule yeah. on the list, and it's the one saying that we shouldn't waste time with anything other it than is, the list. It is not my favorite rule. It no, is not my least favorite rule. It is the most ironic rule, and it thus is. it is the best rule. <laughs> I want to believe it's self-aware. I don't believe it I is. I don't think it either. It's a ridiculous rule as well. It's saying that you shouldn't have, like, atmospheric side passages, which yep. I understand. You don't want to have atmosphere that isn't there for a purpose, mm. but it almost gives you the sense that you shouldn't have atmosphere, which I think is foolish. If Van Dyne completely committed to this rule, it would be literally each page would say, X is dead, Y is investigating... Here is a list of clues, and then the next page would be the answer, right? Like, we wouldn't have yeah. a story. The good thing is he doesn't completely commit to this rule. It's good. Um, yeah. But you can definitely tell that there's no mention of the weather. There's no mention of, you know, what the smell of the room was like when yeah. we enter into various clubs in his novels. It's mm. just, we entered the room. Yeah. Here are the people. Well, this is the fun thing about atmosphere is that you can see those sorts of clues in there. The smell of the room might yeah. indicate that a gun has recently been fired, uh -huh. you know, that sort of thing. 
Um, that's that's where you get into really interesting uh, playing with these sorts of inconsequential details that turn out to be consequential in the end. Rule number 17, a professional criminal must never be shouldered with the guilt of a crime in a detective story. Now, this is kind of saying the same thing as the rule about secret societies and mafiosos, but in a bit of a different way, I think. Mm. Basically, all it's saying is that you don't want to get to the end of the story and you say, and you were the culprit, because it was also you that broke into this other house last week, and you were the other house the previous week, and the one before that. You don't want it to be that their character outside of the story and the things they've done in the past have really over-infected the story. Yes, and on the flip side, of course, he says, a really fascinating crime is one committed by a pillar of a church or a spinster noted for her charities. Um, some of the most interesting murder mysteries are the ones where the, the nicest person is is the killer in the end. Yeah. And this very much plays into Van Dyne's idea that it should be someone of worth. It should be someone who has done good things you wouldn't necessarily suspect, someone who maybe is even helpful during the investigation. Um, characters like that are the most interesting uh murder culprits. Yeah, it gives you a very nice reason to explore the motive rather than just having it be, ah, of course, it was the man who has shot 30 other people and he shot him because he liked the number 30 and needed to get to it. As a rule of thumb, if the murder mystery presents you with a character and they say right at the side of the novel, this is definitely the killer, it's probably not the killer. (laughs) Like, (laughs) if they say, man, this is the most, this is evil Harry and he carries a knife around his pocket the whole time he's got tattoos and, and he has that, connections to the mafia with that throw herds out. removed the tool from the tool belt of how he tries to deceive me throw them out yes what are you talking about I don't always give you the most despicable character not, not every always. time just most of the time ah uh, yes as fun as it is rule number 18 a crime in a detective story must never turn out to be an accident or suicide it's an interesting one because on the one hand I understand what he's coming at you don't want to get to the end of the novel and go oh it wasn't actually it wasn't a anyone at all. Yeah. At the same time, I think that you can get some very interesting stories out of yep. that premise. Tool in the toolbox, right? Absolutely. Um, I could envision a very interesting murder mystery where someone was, you know, dead all along, or someone has accidentally fallen out of a cupboard and their, their corpse has been found, and everyone's trying to figure out who it is, and they all end up throwing accusations at each other. And it turns out it was no one, but terrible things happen as a result. Those are fun. Yes, but then that isn't really a Van Dyne story in the first place. So you can at least get that perspective. Well, there's a difference between a murder mystery fiction and a Van Dyne story, of course, but that's a a whole other thing. That's an interesting case to make. Yeah, it is. Uh, Rule number 19, the motives for all crimes in detective stories should be personal. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, we have characters that drive the story forward. Um, This uh, is kind of an interesting one to pick alongside the we should not have any extraneous details. Indeed. And also there should be no love in the story. There's definitely an argument to be made that motive uh, or or any sort of drama in the murder mystery case is extraneous Mm. um, beyond just I wanted to kill this person for money. Like that could be the motive for any case. But I like that Van Dyne is taking a second to say, hey, you should have real characters in your story and you should understand like why they did it. Even if you don't, you know, empathize with them and think they're the greatest character in the world, but like there should be a reason for their murder. It should just because be because because, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely agree. Mm. And then finally we get to rule number twenty. A grab bag. A grab bag. And to give my credo an even score of items, see, I told you he wanted to get to 20. I see. So I convenient. I herewith list a few of the devices which no self-respecting detective story writer will now avail himself of. And then we have A to J mm-hmm. of a bunch of things that apparently one should never use. A bunch of things that are totally inconsequential most of the time. I mean, 
I'm, I assume that he's attacking specific authors and specific stories at this point. Absolutely. And I don't, use that, I don't use that term lightly because there are some very specific things in here. Yeah. Um, the doctor does not bark and thereby reveals the fact that the intruder was, is familiar. Like, that sounds like a clue, but it, it seems like he's, he's read a specific story that's used that and he's not happy with yes, it. Yes, this, uh, this is Van Dyne getting his frustrations with the genre out on the page. And admittedly, I do agree with some of these. Yeah. Like some of them, it's just like, oh, really? I feel like that's a bit tropey. Can we avoid that one? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, things like ciphers and things like cigarette butts, they were things mm. of the time. Yep. They were important things that people had and used, you know, especially around when he was writing between World War One and Two. Mm. Yeah. He's really just saying this this grab bag of rules, just saying no, no terrible cliches, please. Please think about what you're using and make sure it isn't something that's been done a thousand times before. Make sure it isn't something that is totally unfair. It's it's almost a summation of his like the creed that he's had for the whole the whole mm. way going through these rules. Absolutely. And as we know, said by one Ogden Nash, Philo Vance, SS Van Dyne's detective, needs a kick in the pants. That he does. That's called P-A-N-C. P-A-N-C. And you know what? I think that's true. He is completely insufferable follows these rules to an absolute T, at least as far as I know so far. Yeah. And, you know, that's 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 what you get when yeah. you buy a Van Dyne book. I assume he has these these notes tattooed into his arm. I don't know how he fits them all on there, but you know. He was probably born with the rules on him because he is perfect. Oh, that makes so much sense. Oh, that makes the most sense. Follow Vance really is the greatest. This has been the 20 Rules for Detective Stories by S.S. Van Dyne here on Death of the Reader. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll catch you on the show next time. <laughs>